Well, good morning, everyone, and thanks for joining us again as we start uh, this new series called The Problem of God. And I hope that this series will be challenging. I hope it'll be one that you can dig into during the week uh, and also try to examine maybe what you believe. And if you're here with us and you uh, are not a believer in Christianity and you're just exploring or you're a skeptic and you're doubting or you're totally against all of these things, thank you for coming. And uh, I hope that as we go through this series that you, your questions maybe would be answered and that maybe you'd reach out to us to have a discussion as well. So thank you for joining uh, us this morning. Uh, we're going through the series called The Problem of God, and it's based on a book by, written by a pastor named Mark Clark. And there's 10 chapters to the book, and so we're actually going to be dealing with five of them on Sunday mornings and five of them on Friday nights. Today we're going to be talking about the problem of God's existence. Okay, But as we go through this series, we're going to be uh, talking about a few other things. Next Sunday, we're going to be looking at the problem of evil and suffering, which is a, a hot topic. A lot of people have questions about this and can be very troubled. Um, the problem of sex, the problem of exclusivity. Why is Christianity uh, say that it's the way to, to the Lord? Uh, the problem of Jesus. Okay, and so we're going to look at these topics on Sunday mornings. On Friday nights, it's not going to be a teaching time, but it's going to be more of a discussion time. So I'm going to ask you if you can read those chapters ahead of time and join us on Friday nights via Zoom call. And uh, as, we go, as we go through that, we're going to talk about the problem of science this Friday, and then the problem of the Bible, the problem of the Christ myth, the problem of hell, and also the problem of hypocrisy. So join us on Friday nights via Zoom. You can find out all the information in the Zoom link uh, at our website, uachome.org slash the problem of God. Uh, we also have a WhatsApp group, and so if you want to join that, you can do that as well. And share some of your thoughts and share some quotes or maybe d some difficulties or questions that you might have. We would love um, for you to participate that way. Uh, we've also created a Spotify playlist with some of the songs that we're going to be singing during this series. Uh, for example, the song that we just sang right now, which is a new song called The Answer. Uh, so feel free to uh, look that up and listen to some of those songs as well. This Friday, as we talk about um, the problem of science, uh, I have a little giveaway uh, to give to you. So if you join and you're the 10th person to join the Zoom call, I'm going to give to you the book, The Language of God by Francis Collins. And I'm going to share a few quotes uh, about, uh, from that book today, so you get a little bit of a taste of what that book is about. But if you're the 10th person to join the Zoom call this Friday, then I'm going to give you that book. So try to join on time at 7 p.m., and let's have a discussion. Read the chapter. It's chapter one of the, of the book, The Problem of God, and come with maybe some thoughts and questions uh, or things to share, and let's have a conversation together. I want to tell you about a man named uh, Lee Strobel. Lee Strobel was an investigative uh, journalist uh, who worked for the Chicago Tribune, and he was an atheist. Uh, he didn't believe in God. He was actually really against, against that. But one day, his wife, actually, who was a, an agnostic, um, she became a believer in Jesus and became a follower of Christ. This brought so much anger to, uh, to Lee Strobel, and he felt like he had lost his wife and really lost um, his relationship with her. So being an investigative journalist, do you know what he did? 
he actually started to um, research and he said, I'm going to try to figure out what this really is and disprove the claims of Christ and disprove Christianity. And so as he started uh, to do that, it took him about a year and a half of intense research and interviews with experts and trying to disprove the claims of Christianity. And Strobel actually ended up accepting the claims of Christ as an investigative journalist, and he became a follower of Jesus. He went on to write this book here, The Case for Christ, and many other books as well um, that he wrote, and this book, Case for Christ, was actually made into a movie if you want to check it out. But today's topic uh, is about, is related to the existence of God, and it's impossible for me or anyone to prove scientifically that God exists. Now, Today's message is going to be a little bit more scientific than it will be verses from the Bible if you're accustomed to that. And so you might feel like you're in a science class today uh, versus in a church, but it's part of the theme of this message today. Um, So it's impossible for me to prove scientifically that God actually exists. But what I'd like to do is to try to show you that there that a rational look at the evidence will actually point us towards a creator instead of pointing us away from a creator. And that's the conclusion that Lee Strobel came to as well, right? Everyone has a belief system. You have a belief system. I have a belief system, right? And so we need to figure out as well, can we honestly and rationally just follow the evidence instead of maybe our own biases? So the thesis of this message is is very simple. It's this. It is more rational to believe that God exists than that he does not, okay? It's more rational to follow the evidence of where where the evidence is to believe that God exists versus that he does not. So let's try to do that this morning. Let's try to follow the evidence. And I'm going to give you a bird's eye view, and I'm going to give you some things that are very general, and I can't cover all the specifics. And so if there's something I say and you're like, oh, no, there's a little bit more to that. Yes, I understand that. And it's impossible to cover all of that in in a short message this morning. And so I encourage you to dig in deeper, uh, even into this book and other books that I'm going to be talking about as well. And let's discuss this a little bit more even on Friday night as well. We can, If you have any questions from uh, this morning, feel free on Friday as well in the Zoom call and also in your life group to discuss this together uh, in, in community and let's try to figure some of these things out and follow the evidence. Now, in this in book, The Palm of God, we're looking specifically at chapter two. And in this chapter, Mark Clark gives actually three specific reasons for why the evidence points towards that God exists. Now, he's not the first one to talk about these things and many others have talked about this. And uh, I'd like to also reference a few other books this morning and encourage you to read these books as well. One is Timothy Keller's The Reason for God. Another Another is On Guard by William Lane Craig. Another is I Don't Have Enough Faith to Be an Atheist by Norman Geisler and Frank Turek. And also The Language of God by Dr. Francis Collins, which again, I'm going to give away on Friday. Um, So some of these books are really important and I would encourage you to read them. There's a lot of good information there and I'll reference some of them uh, this morning as well. Another very famous scientist is Dr. Alvin Plantiga. He's a renowned philosopher who uh, helped really revolutionize a lot of this uh, thinking with regards to belief in God, rational thinking, and bringing all of this into the philosophical world. And over 50 50 plus years, he's worked uh, at this and really has become a leader and a pioneer in bringing some of these conversations into the philosophical world. And he points out and says that there's probably about two dozen philosophical arguments for the existence of God. But again, I'm going to 
go back again to my thesis here and say it's more important, it's more rational to believe that God exists than that he doesn't. And so let's look at these th three things. You ready? Three things specifically, and let's, let's try to look at them uh, this morning. The first one is the evidence for, the evidence of morality. Now, the person that really uh, put a lot of work into this is a man named C.S. Lewis. He was an Oxford scholar, and he's the writer of the Chronicles of Narnia. And um, you might have heard of the Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Lewis grew up in a religious family, but he later on became an atheist. But he was eventually brought back to theism and then eventually to Christianity after wrestling with some of these issues and even uh, thinking about this idea of the evidence of morality and conversations with some of his friends as well well, who were scholars, such as J.R.R. Tolkien. If you recognize the name, he's the author of The Hobbit and The Lord of the Rings series. But probably Lewis's greatest apologetic work is a book called Mere Christianity. It was a, a series of radio talks that took place during World War II in England. And in there, he presented arguments uh, and uh, discussions about why uh, Christianity is true, and I would encourage you to read the book for yourself as well. And one of the things that Lewis points out near the beginning of this book is the idea of the existence of morality. See, we use phrases all the time in our life, phrases like, that's not fair, I was first in line, you promised, you or you deserve that. Uh, all of these statements are statements of morality, of right and wrong, that reflect a sense within us and also that the other person has an understanding of right and wrong. Lewis says that it's not just about the displeasing behavior of the other person, but it's about appealing to a law that is higher than that person, right? It's the, the, the rule of law or morality that both of them share. He says in Mere Christianity this, He's appealing when he's talking about a, two people having a conversation and maybe having a discussion that says, oh, that's not fair or this is not fair. He's saying that that person is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior, which he expects the other man to know about. It looks, in fact, very much as if both parties had in mind some kind of law or rule or fair play or decent behavior or morality or whatever you like to call it about which they really agreed. You can see this, if you have kids, you can see this right away even from when they're young. There's arguing, there's going back and forth. That's my toy, I had that first. Uh, about TV time or homework, oh, it's not fair, well, how come I have to always do the chores? Where does this sense of right and wrong actually come from, right? It, even if you just take the events of, of this world for the past, say, two years, there have been a lot of things that have been unsettling and unjust and unfair. And there's been a cry for justice. There's been a cry for equality, racial equality, a cry for fair treatment of others, a, care, a cry for love for the disenfranchised, for help for the poor. Where do we get all of these ideas? Where do we get this sense of morality or this sense of, of right and wrong? Christianity points us towards a moral law within us. And if it does that, then we also have to ask the question, is there a moral lawgiver? Now, there are, lots of, there are some arguments against, against this as well, against this uh, uh, evidence of morality. Uh, one of them is 
the relativistic understanding of morality, right? This is when we have our own sense of uh, morality that's very subjective. This is what I feel is right, right? And then we sometimes impose that sense of morality uh, on, on other people. Now, this can be, become very problemsome as well because if one person's morality says, well, I can treat somebody of a different skin color differently, Right? And they say, well, that's what my morality says, and it's relativistic, then that becomes a real problem within society. Or to say, oh, well, I'm okay cutting this person's hand off, it's fine for me, right? Then how do you argue against something like that? Another argument against this idea of evidence of morality is that mor morals come from evolutionary development. Right? And this also poses a lot of problems as well. Because when we look at evolutionary development, uh, we see that what evolution teaches us is that it's a fight for the, the fittest. It's the fight for survival. So if someone is disabled, you leave that person to die. If someone is not beneficial to the existence of, uh, of humanity, if someone's not uh, beneficial to, to survival, then you leave that person behind. You don't fight for that person. But everything that's within us, and you can see that in the world around us, cries for justice, cries for justice for the disenfranchised, cries for justice for the poor, cries for justice for the disabled or those that don't have. And so when you look at, uh, when you look at biology and when you say, well, morals can come from, uh, from evolution, then there, there's a real problem because everything we understand of evolutionary biology goes against what our morals are screaming out and crying for right now. Uh, I recently finished a book called Sapiens, A Brief History of Humankind. Not normally one of the books that I read, but I'm expanding a little bit of my, of my reading. It's written by a, a, a historian, a philosopher, a professor by the name of Yuval Harari. And um, he's an evolutionary biologist, and he weaves this amazing tale of how Homo sapiens passed through the cognitive revolution and developed language and society and other things. Things, but it's all about this idea that Homo sapiens rose to the top, that be, the Homo sapiens became the apex predator uh, in the earth uh, in doing evil and bad to others so that they can survive. Uh, all of what's depicted in the book is a story for the fight for the top position. It's a battle of, of dominance. Uh, it's a shocking carelessness of other species, uh, other fellow sapiens. Uh, nothing comes close to a call for justice and equity and equality that we feel today. In the book Problem of God, Mark Clark says that Hitler actually carried out moral the morality of evolutionary theory to its natural conclusion, right, which sought to favor one race over another. Uh, in Hitler's book Mein Kampf in 1925, he wrote, quote, if nature does not wish that weaker individuals should mate with the stronger, she wishes even less that a superior race should intermingle with the inferior one. Because in such cases, all her efforts throughout hundreds of thousands of years to establish an evolutionary higher stage of being may thus be rendered futile. He who does not wish to fight in this world where permanent struggle is the law of life has not the right to exist. Can you see how that is totally against what our morality calls out for, what God has put within us, right? And that's why this evidence of morality points towards a creator, points to someone, a moral lawgiver that has put something within us. Dr. Francis Collins, he's the director of the National Institutes of Health. Uh, you might be familiar with the name Dr. Anthony Fauci, 
because of all that's going on with coronavirus right now? Well, Dr. Francis Collins is Dr. Anthony Fauci, Fauci's boss. And Dr. Uh, Francis Collins also was the one in charge of the Human Genome Project in mapping out the human genome. And this is what he says about this, this contrast of morals with what evolutionary biology will tell us versus what we feel within us. He says agape, or selfless altruism, presents a major challenge for the evolutionist. It is quite frankly a scandal to reductionist reasoning. It cannot be accounted for by the drive of individual selfish genes to perpetuate themselves. Quite the contrary. It may lead humans to make sacrifices that lead to great personal suffering, injury, or death without any evidence of benefit. And yet, if we carefully examine that the inner voice we sometimes call conscience, the motivation to practice this kind of love exists within all of us, despite our frequent efforts to ignore it. See, what he's saying here is that we have this selfless altruism within us. Where did it come from? Well, we can't trace it back to evolutionary biology because evolutionary biology tells us the complete opposite of this, right? Selfless altruism can't be a development uh, of evolution because it contradicts it in every way, right? Nevertheless, some people claim that our good and moral feelings come from evolutionary development. It actually would have been kicked out a long time ago. In The Problem of God on page 49, he says, any notion of absolute good is what Dawkins calls a, quote, misfiring, a precious mistake. The problem with this explanation for good, as many have pointed out, is if we inherit our morality from genes wherein survival is the utmost consideration, many of our modern moral constructs are unexplainable and even counterproductive. For instance, why would laying down your life for people you have never met be considered heroic rather than stupid? Think about that for a moment. And here again, coming back to the initial premise, let's follow a rational or follow rational evidence. Let's look at the evidence before us and see what is really possible here. I love what Timothy Keller says. He says this in his book, The Reason for God. For evolutionary purposes, however, the opposite response, uh, hostility to all people outside one's group, should be just as widely considered moral and right behavior. So he's saying hostility to people outside your family, outside your society should be considered normal because that's what... Evolution teaches us throughout the thousands and, and, and millions of years, right? Yet today, we believe that sacrificing time, money, emotion, and even life, especially for someone not our kind or tribe, is right. Where do we get that from? If we see a total stranger fall in the river, we jump in after him or feel guilty for not doing so. In fact, most people will feel the obligation to do so even if the person in the water is an enemy. How could that trait have come down by a process of natural selection? Such people would have been less likely to survive and pass on their genes, right? Then he says this, on the basis of strict evolutionary naturalism, the belief that everything about us is here because of a process of natural selection, that kind of altruism should have died out of the human race long ago. Instead, it is stronger than ever. What causes us to say, hey, I'm going to help out Toronto Lions Church at the end of this month? 
you might not know anybody there, but some people are willing to make sandwiches for them. What causes us to help the disenfranchised, to help the poor, to help the needy? Mark Clark in his book, he gives two examples. One is about his friend when he was working at Michael's. His friend said that, I believe all morality is culturally constructed relative, right? Remember we just talked, we talked about that before, relative moralism, a product of our evolution and that it's wrong for our Western ideals to be projected onto other cultures. And some people believe this relative uh, moralism where we don't want to project our moral values because of our culture on other people and our morals are based on our culture, not on something that's innate within us. So Mark Clark challenged him and said, what if we went to the jungle and we went with your sister and some cannibals caught your sister, killed her and ate her and that was okay for them morally? Would you be okay with that? Now he was in a little bit of a corner there and he, 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 he couldn't really get out of there. So he said, although it would hurt me, I would not have a problem with it. Now, do you think we really believe him? Probably not. If he was in that situation, he probably wouldn't say, yeah, go ahead and eat my sister, it's fine, right? That, those things don't happen, right? And that's the problem of relativistic morality, right? What's good for one is not good for the other, or it offends or hurts the other person. The second example that Clark gives in his book is about uh, the sexual revolution in the 1960s and in the 1970s. There was a time uh, in that time period where they said they didn't want to be constrained by sex, uh, sexual morals. They didn't want people telling them what they could do sexually or not do sexually, and they wanted to, to let go all the barriers and let all of that go free and say, you can't impose your morality on me. Yet at the same time, they were protesting the Vietnam War and saying that it was unjust saying that you can't go to, to, to fight against those people. What told them that it was unjust against people on the other side of the world that they didn't even know? That relativistic moralism, this is the flaw when we remove objective moral values where you can say, don't impose your sexuality, uh, sexual morals on me, but going to war, no, 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 that's completely wrong. See, you can't have that, Right? Where do they get off protesting against the Vietnam War? Where do they feel that sense of injustice towards minority groups or towards the disenfranchised or towards the poor? Why not let everyone just fight their own battle? And that's where people like C.S. Lewis and Collins and others found that the evidence of the moral law was working in their hearts and pointed them towards a moral lawgiver, pointed them towards a creator. That's so what it says in Romans chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. Even the Gentiles, or Gentiles meaning people that were outside of the family of God, people that didn't know God, who do not have God's written law, right, like the Bible or something God had sent down, show that they know his law when they instinctively obey it, even without having heard it. They demonstrate that God's law is written in their hearts for their own conscience and their thoughts either accuse them or tell them they are doing right. See, here, we understand you don't need to be a follower of Jesus. You don't need to be a Christian to be a good person because God's laws are written upon our hearts. And here he says, even when the Gentiles or people that don't know God or don't even know what the law of God is, they obey it instinctively from their hearts because the moral lawgiver has put that within them. Right? There are lots of people that are not followers of Christ or followers of Christianity or even claim a, a, a theistic belief that are great people, that are advocating for justice, that are advocating for, against racism and against the disenfranchised and, against, and, and trying to help the poor and want fairness and equality. 
Where did they get that from? Paul here says in Romans 2, it's because God, the moral lawgiver, has put something in their heart. Paul clearly says here, it's about the common law, the moral law, written within our hearts, that's helping us to do what is right. So when we see, we, we still see sin and injustice in, in the previous example about even a tribe wanting to eat somebody, ca- cannibalism. So what happened to the moral law there? Well, just because the moral law is not obeyed doesn't mean you can toss the whole moral law out. As Mark Clark says, uh, he says, quote, morals are not a matter of mere taste or opinion any more than math equations. Human beings may not get the moral math problem correct, but that doesn't change the fact that there really is a right answer. And later on, he says, the very fact that something within us is repelled by racism, sexism, and unequal treatment of the poor and disabled begs the question that such convictions would come, would have to come from somewhere, for they are not natural, right? And so, in, in, in this section about morality, we really need to understand and see that there is a moral lawgiver. Look where the evidence points. Look within us and look and see what, what uh, all of this is about. These are, are, are contrary to the nature convictions and strong natural evidence, rational evidence for the existence of God. Colin says, Uh, Dr. Francis Collins says, I had started this journey of intellectual exploration to confirm my atheism. He started investigating some of this because he wanted to prove that atheism was right. That now lay in ruins as the argument from the moral law and many other issues forced me to admit the plausibility of the God hypothesis, right? So let me ask you, let's look at this rationally, right? Let's look and understand what is this moral law and how we relate to each other and see, does it point to something that's bigger than us? The second thing is the evidence of cosmology. William Lane Craig is a, is a philosopher and a theologian who wrote the book uh, On Guard, Defending Your Faith with Reason and Precision. Uh, his influence on cosmology is enormous and he popularized what's known as the uh, Kalam cosmological argument. It started from the 12th century Muslim theologian Al-Ghazali. And uh, uh, William Lane Craig, he actually added to that. He added scientific and philosophical arguments, which became a really good argument that points towards the existence of God. And it goes, it goes something like this. There's three premises. The first one, whatever begins to exist has a cause. Number two, the universe began to exist. And number three, therefore, the universe has a cause, okay? The first premise is something that we see every day, right? When, when you see a cup of coffee uh, on your table, you don't think that it just appeared out of nowhere. You realize that there was a cause for that, right? If you see a, a building, a pen, or, or even a human being, you know that they just didn't come out of nowhere. There was a cause to that. There was a beginning. For years, atheists and agnostics were able to tune back to the fact that the universe was eternal, that the universe existed forever. And so there was no first cause, and you didn't need to look for a god or something bigger because the universe was there. It was eternal. But when Einstein developed his theory of general relativity, he made this theory, but he realized that there was one thing that was wrong. He realized from his theory that the universe should actually be expanding or contracting. 
So instead, what Francis Collins says, he says um, that Einstein introduced something of a fudge factor because he wanted to keep a steady state of the universe. He didn't want the universe to be expanding or contracting. Some people say that later on, it was reported that this was one of Einstein's greatest uh, mistakes or greatest regrets that he, he made this mistake. But later on in the 1920s, Alexander Friedman and George uh, LeMaitre took Einstein's equations and came up with a theory that the universe was actually expanding. Now, they didn't have scientific proof for it, but based on Einstein's theories and equations, they said the universe must be expanding. Then in 1929, along came this man named Edwin Hubble. You might have known his, recognized his name. Uh, the uh, Hubble Space Telescope uh, that was launched in 1990 was named after him. And he made some observations from his observatory that actually confirmed Friedman and, and LeMaitre's Le theory. Right? It's sometimes called, it's, it's recognized as probably one of the greatest discoveries in the 20th century. He observed a, a red shift of light, which was the stretching of light waves as galaxies move further and further away from us. Right? Now, without going into a huge explanation for this, basically what it comes down to is that the universe was expanding and getting bigger. And Hubble was able to see this. Right? And it confirmed the, the theory of Friedman and, and, and Leymatri's uh, theory, right? And the galaxies were actually at rest, but the space itself was getting bigger. And so Friedman and Leymatri's uh, model became known as the Big Bang Theory. As you trace the expansion of the universe back in time, you come back all the way to a starting point. When all the mass of the, the universe was compressed into some single point, and then the equation, and then the question is asked, well, what caused that starting point? What caused that beginning? Now, there are so many other things that confirm the Big Bang Theory. Of course, Einstein's theory of relativity, as I mentioned before, confirm it. The abundance of helium in the universe. In 1965, there was a discovery of uh, cosmic background radiation. And I won't go into all of those, those details, but also one of the, the biggest... Um, um, biggest theories or laws uh, in the universe, the second law of thermodynamics, which says that in a closed system like the universe, things will become increasingly disorderly, right? So for example, if you had a bottle and you injected some gas into there, the molecules would evenly, eventually would evenly spread all throughout that, that bottle. The molecules wouldn't just go towards one area of the bottle, but it would eventually spread over the whole bottle until it comes to a state of equilibrium, right? And the reason for this is that there are so many more ways for molecules to be in a disorderly state than it to be in an orderly state. So the natural conclusion from this is that all of the energy in the universe is going to spread itself out evenly in this closed system of the universe, right? Until it's all equal throughout the universe. And scientists call this the heat death. Right? And so here's the hard question. If the universe is eternal and infinite, then why has it not reached heat death already? And therefore, the second law of thermodynamics helps us to see that the universe actually had a beginning, had a starting point. The universe started in one place, right? And so they estimate it to be about 13.8 billion years ago. Genesis 1.1 says, in the beginning, God created 
the heavens and the earth. I think that's where the starting point was. The Big Bang wasn't always accepted as scientific, in the scientific community. Sometimes we, we think, oh, it's Christians or religious people that pushed away the Big Bang theory. They didn't want it. Actually, the Big Bang theory supports the idea of creation even more. And that's why scientists actually didn't want people to believe, uh, didn't want the Big Bang Theory to be true. And they tried so many things throughout the years, throughout the decades, to try to have other theories. But eventually, the Big Bang Theory always won out. And now, by, by large consensus, that it's accepted. Here's a quote by the associate professor of physics, J.M. Wersinger. Um, the Big Bang was hard to accept, right? Because, quote, give, it, uh, give in to the Judeo-Christian idea of beginning of the world, it also seemed to have to call for an act of supernatural creation. It took time, observational evidence, and careful verification of predictions made by the Big Bang model to convince the scientific community to accept the idea of a cosmic genesis, a successful model that imposed itself on a reluctant scientific community. And so we go back to this uh, Kalam cosmological argument, right, that William Lane Craig is proposing, that whatever begins to exist has a cause. The universe began to exist, and therefore the universe has a cause. The question is, what's that cause? And that's what I want to challenge you with as well. Let's look at the evidence. Let's look at where it points to. Let's look at where it leads to in a logical way, right? Francis Collins said, the Big Bang cries out for a divine explanation. It forces the conclusion that nature had a defined beginning. I cannot see how nature could have created itself. Only a supernatural force that is outside of space and time could have done that. Right? In Psalm 8, I love it when it says, When I look at the night sky and see the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars you have set in place, talking about God's handiwork and God's creation. The third thing, and the last one, is the evidence of design, right? When we look at the world around us, we can see the complexity, and I would say even the fingerprints of God. There are so many things within our universe that are so finely tuned within its constants that in the universe, if even one of them were to change, it could mean the elimination of humanity. Scientists use something that's called the anthropic principle to try to reason why the universe is so finely tuned and why human life exists. Norman Geisler and Frank Turek outline a number of them in their book, I Don't Have Enough Fate to Be an Atheist, and I'll just cover, cover a few of them, right? The first one is the oxygen level on Earth. The oxygen level uh, in the atmosphere is 21%. If it was 25%, there would be spontaneous fires. If it was 15%, we would suffocate. Atmospheric transparency, right? It means like how much radiation and how much waves come into our Earth. If it was too transparent and there was too much solar radiation, then it would destroy us. But if it was uh, less transparent, right, then there wouldn't be enough of what we need. Moon-Earth gravitational interaction. If there was more of this, then there would be greater tidal waves and it would, other things would be way too severe. If there were less, then there would be orbital changes that would bring climate instabilities. Life on Earth would, would be impossible, right? Carbon dioxide levels, right? If the CO2 level were higher, there would be too much greenhouse effect and we would burn up. If the levels were lower, then plants would not, have, it would not be efficient in photosynthesis, right? Gravity. If it, was, uh, if it was different, uh, 
as than what gravity is right now, it poses a real problem to life on Earth, right? And, and there's so many other factors that we can talk about. Centrifugal forces of planetary movements, the expansion rate of the universe, the, the speed of light, uh, water vapor levels in the atmosphere, Jupiter's orbit, uh, the thickness of the Earth's crust, the, the rotation of the Earth, the, the axis tilt of the Earth, the atmospheric discharge rate, the seismic activity, and so much more. All of these various things and various constants, even if, if one of them were to change, life on Earth would not be possible, right? They say in their book, the extent of the universe's fine tuning makes the anthropic principle perhaps the most powerful argument for the existence of God. Astrophysicist Hugh Ross has calculated the possibility that these and other constants, uh, how if they were to exist in another planet uh, by chance, right, in our universe. So assuming that there are 10 to the power of 22 planets, that's a lot of planets in the, in the universe, right, he says the possibility of life occurring is 1 in 10 to the 138th power. That's a huge number. To put that in, in a little perspective, there's only 10 to the power of 70 atoms in the whole universe. So the probability of life occurring on Earth is so, so minuscule, is so small. Arno Penzas, he was one of the ones that discovered, um, he was the co-discoverer of the radiation afterglow that helped, as I mentioned before, to prove the Big Bang Theory. He said this, he, was a, he won the Nobel Prize as well. He said this, astronomy leads us to a unique event, a universe which was created out of nothing and delicately balanced to provide exactly the conditions required to support life. In the absence of an absurdly improbable accident, the observations of the modern science seem to suggest an underlying, one might say, supernatural plan, right? Now, there are ways to get around this, this fine-tuning of the universe. One theory is what's called the multiverse theory. The multiverse theory says that we live in a, in, in a universe, but there are an, an infinite number of other universes. Now, I'm just trying to reduce the whole thing down instead of going to all the complexity. So we live in a universe that's finely tuned exactly for us, but there's an infinite number of other universes that maybe those constants are different numbers, and so there's no life that exists on there. But we happen to live in the universe that everything is so finely tuned. The problem with this theory there's no evidence for it. There's no observable evidence that there are other universes out there. All we know is our universe, right? A rational look at the evidence causes us to look and see, hey, there has to be a cause for this beginning. And how could all of these things so finely tuned exist? Just out of random chance? Again, we have to choose what we want to believe. Do we have faith to believe that that random chance can occur one in 10 to the 138th power? Or is there more evidence to point towards the existence of a creator? There are other illustrations that are used to present this. For example, you walk into the room and you see 100 dice and they're all with the number six on it. Would you think that that just all happened by chance? Right? Or if you were dealt a, a, a poker hand and you had a straight flush, a hundred times in a row or more. Wouldn't you think, hey, there's something fishy about that? There's no way I could get that a hundred times in a row. 
Well, that's what we're talking about when we talk about some of these probabilities. Stephen Hawkins in his book, A Brief History of Time, said this. If the rate of expansion of the universe one second after the Big Bang had been smaller by even one part in 100,000 million millions, the universe would have re-collapsed before it ever reached its present size. Uh, That's a very small probability for everything to work out exactly so that so that life could exist? Let's examine the evidence. Let's see where it points to. As I mentioned before, Dr. Francis Collins is the director of the National Institutes of Health, and he's been the director for more than 10 years now. He's Dr. Anthony Fauci's boss, and he led the Human Genome Project, mapping out the entire human genome and understanding and learning its principles. And DNA is something that's so amazing. I don't have time uh, this morning to get into the details of DNA, uh, but you can read a little bit more in Francis Collins' book, The Language of God, which I'm going to give away this Friday on the Zoom call. DNA is such a fascinating topic. It reveals how intelligent life, intelligent information is used to code the very basic building blocks of life. If even if we write one sentence, there's, intelligent, uh, there's intelligence behind that, then what about the millions of lines of code within us that speak of how we are created? Even the atheist Richard Dawkins, he said that in one amoeba, there's enough DNA to fill a thousand complete sets of the Encyclopedia Britannica. I have a book here. If you looked at this book and you opened the pages and you said, look at all of these words, would you ever come to the conclusion to say, this happened by chance, this whole book, there's no real reason behind it, there's no conscious, uh, intentional effort behind this, but all of these words came there by chance? No, you'd look at this and you'd say, hey, somebody had to put this there in this order, in this way to prove this point, to explain this purpose. Well, that's what our DNA is doing. It's telling, it's telling things, our molecules within us, how to form, how to make this and how to make that and, and how the human person can exist, right? And that's why we read in Psalm 139, 13 and 14, you made all the delicate inner parts of my body, the psalmist says, speaking to God, and knit me together in my mother's womb. Thank you for making me so wonderfully complex. Your workmanship is marvelous. How well I know it. Friends, can we just follow the evidence? Can we just follow where it leads and where it points to, right? My appeal is to a a reasoned, rational weighing of the evidence. Dr. Francis Collin, who I've quoted a number of times uh, this morning, he won this year the Templeton Award. And I want to play a, a portion of his speech. You can watch the whole thing online later if you'd like, but just a portion of his acceptance speech where he talks about his journey from atheism to belief in God. Just watch this video. Beginning with the reason that I'm here tonight, let me say something about the perceived disharmony between science and faith. Nearly six in 10 adults in the US say science and religion frequently conflict. Well, that was certainly my view as I was growing up in Virginia without much of a spiritual perspective, but falling in love with the scientific method. Faith seemed to me to be the antithesis of the rational scientific approach that I wanted to pursue. And so I migrated without much thought about it into agnosticism and ultimately atheism. But then I moved from quantum mechanics to medical school, and the questions of the meaning of life and the reality of mortality were impossible to ignore. 
Science didn't help me much here. I was surrounded by patients and some of my professors for whom faith provided a way to wrestle with those profound questions. That was puzzling. Challenged by one of my patients to describe what I believed about God, I realized my atheism was dangerously thin. Seeking to prop this up, I began a journey to try to understand why intellectually sophisticated people could actually believe in God. And to my dismay, I found that atheism turned out to be the least rational of all the choices. Uh, to quote Chesterton, atheism is the most daring of all dogmas, for it is the assertion of a universal negative. Scientists aren't supposed to do that. Over a two-year period, with much help from wise mentors and the writings of C.S. Lewis, I slowly and rather reluctantly came to the conclusion that belief in God, while not possible to prove, was the most rational choice available. Furthermore, I saw in the very science that I so loved something that I had missed, the evidence that seemed to cry out for a creator. There is something instead of nothing. The universe had a beginning. It follows elegant mathematical laws. And those laws include a half dozen constants that have to have the exact value they do, or there would be no possibility of anything interesting or complex in nature. God must be an amazing physicist and mathematician. But would he or she actually care about me? The major world religions seem to say yes, but why should I trust that? And then I met the person who not only claimed to know those answers and to know God, but to be God. That was Jesus Christ. I had thought he was a myth, but the historical evidence for his real existence was utterly compelling, including his life, his death, and yes, even this, his resurrection. And as the truth of the New Testament sank in, I realized I was called to make a decision. In my 27th year, I could simply not resist any longer. With some trepidation, I dealt, knelt in the dewy grass on an October morning somewhere in the Cascades, and I became a Christian. Friends in whom I confided my newfound faith predicted this would be short-lived. After all, I was by then a physician who was interested in studying genetics. Genetics means DNA. DNA means evolution. And by then, I was convinced that evolution was not only just a theory, it was supported by evidence that made it about as compelling as gravity. Surely, they said, my head would explode when the conflicts emerged. But that never happened. Friends, this morning I've given you a, a big picture overview. There's so many more finer details that I couldn't get into, and there's so much more that we could discuss and talk about. But I want to encourage you, just as Dr. Francis Collins, as Lee Strobel, looked out for the evidence, searched and researched with a sincere heart to follow the evidence. Going back to my premise and thesis of this message, I think there's more evidence that points towards the belief in God than that, than that he doesn't exist. And I wanna encourage you to start that journey as well. And if you're on that journey, we'd love to walk with you and partner with you. If you want prayer, you can uh, join us online for prayer after the service as well. I wanna end by this quote from Lee Strobel, who 
I showed you right at the beginning, this investigative journalist whose life was shattered when his wife became a Christian, and he set out to prove that atheism was right and Christianity and theism was wrong. And he said this, to continue in atheism, I would need to believe that nothing produces everything, non-life produces life, randomness produces fine-tuning, chaos produces information, unconsciousness produces consciousness, and non-reason produces reason. I simply didn't have that much faith. So I leave you with that and ask you, rationally speaking, is there more evidence to prove the existence of God than that he doesn't exist? God bless you.